Good morning, everybody. My name is David, and I uh, have the awesome and wonderful and incredible privilege of being the pastor here at Redeemer Church. And I am really excited about this morning because this morning we uh, start a series that we're doing called The Logic of Faith. And this is a series we've been uh, waiting to do for quite a while, and it's a little different than other things that we have done here on Sunday morning because we're speaking both to the believer and the skeptic alike, and we're gonna go underneath some of the things that we often assume uh, in church on Sunday morning in terms of faith in God and a belief in Jesus and really get into some of the places where a lot of the real conversation is taking place today in our world, definitely outside of the church. We're going to look at the why behind faith, why we believe in God, what difference a belief in God makes in our lives and how we can respond to some of the biggest challenges to belief, uh, for instance, the challenge of evil and suffering, which is a topic we'll look at in weeks to come. This series is also a little different in that um, it's gonna be a little bit more head-oriented. One of the things that Jesus says is that you would love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is definitely one of those ones that aims toward a little bit more heavy towards the minds. So uh, this is gonna be thicker stuff. Let me say to you what my third grade teacher said to me uh, when we would do a little bit heavier stuff in third grade. Um, uh, Please put your thinking caps on, right? This is going to be uh, something that I think if you do the work of of hanging with it and following and thinking through it and asking questions, you're really gonna appreciate it and learn a lot and and get a lot out of it. Two things that are very, um, uh, that are a little unique to this series. Um, Firstly, uh, in order to look smarter than I actually am, I grew a beard, Um, so there's that. (laughs) Number two, uh, we are going, I, I, I think when we, when we sat down and talked about this, we, we recognize that this isn't exactly the best platform to, to have further conversation. And these topics are one that often require uh, further engagements from people. And so we wanted to make some space for that to happen. So if you have questions or you don't agree with something that I say or you, you want to make a point that you think I would benefit from hearing, uh, you can come find me, but you can also actually text in those things to uh, the number that's on the screen. It's the same number that uh, you would text your, your presence here in the morning that Mary Lee always says if you wanna text in, you can just text a question to that number and we will respond to you and we will even, uh, depending on the volume of these, uh, uh, hopefully get to every single person and uh, during the week, maybe on Facebook Live, get on there and respond to one or two of the questions so that this can be something that would edify and be helpful for everybody. And so that's gonna be a little different. Encourage to you, you all to engage. Love to hear uh, what other thoughts and questions you have. And, uh, and with that, let's get going. As is our pattern here, let us go ahead and bow our heads and, and pray. Heavenly Father, our good and great God, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come here this morning and to, um, and to think deeply about some things, Lord, that I'm sure many of us have thought about before. Um, Lord, but to, to, we, we thank you for the chance to make some space in church on Sunday morning and to have this conversation about things that are often assumed but maybe, maybe um, not always thought through. And Lord, I just pray that uh, as I share the things that I have learned and the things that I have learned from many other great 
thinkers, uh, that, that it would help and edify us as a congregation, that it would help clarify things for those of us that may have uh, our own questions, Lord, and that it would, uh, it would be um, helpful in drawing people to your son, Jesus, Lord, and it's in his holy and powerful name that we pray, amen, amen. <clears throat> okay, I want you to imagine that you and a friend are walking in the woods somewhere, and out in the middle of the woods as you're walking, you stumble upon the, in the ground what appears to be like a glowing blue orb, right? And, and it's just kind of there on the forest floor. And, and I imagine that if you did this and you stumbled across this orb, kind of the first question that would run through just about all of our minds is, what, what is this thing, right? And we might pick it up and examine it and try to figure out what this glowing blue orb is. And, and I, I think that what would logically follow as we're trying to figure out what this thing is, is, is another question. How did it get here? Why is this glowing blue orb here, right? Something would naturally latch on in us to the notion that this orb didn't spontaneously appear out of nowhere, but somebody must have put it there. It's related to something. Maybe there are Smurfs about, right? There's some reason for this blue orb to be there, right? Here's what I don't think would happen if that was the scenario that you were in. You were walking with a friend and you're looking at this orb and you're trying to figure out what it is and you turn to your friend and you ask that second question, how did it get here? Here's what I don't think that would happen. I don't think your friend would look at you and say, well, that's kind of a dumb question. Why are you asking about why this thing is here? Why can't you just accept that this blue orb is here? Why, why can't you just assume that it's here and why can't we move on, right? Uh, th that, that would not happen because when we see something as curious as a blue orb, it seems a very reasonable question to ask. We know that for everything that exists, there seems to be some reason or cause for its existence, and that's a very reasonable question. Now, let me ask you this. We would, would naturally ask that question of a blue orb, like how did it get here? But does it, doesn't it also make sense to ask the question of something more mundane, like a toothbrush or uh, a vehicle? or a relationship that you have, a friendship? And let me, let me go further. Wouldn't that question be a lot more important if the magnitude of the thing that you're asking about is greater, right? So what if it's not a blue orb, but a car, or a country, or a continent, or a universe? The question is still really, really important. If we stumbled across a universe, wouldn't it make sense to ask how it got there, right? So that leads us to the question we're asking this morning. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a universe? Why does it exist instead of no universe? It's an immensely important question, and at the heart of it is, is really the question of existence. It's not just why does the universe exist, but why do I exist, right? Why are we here? Why is anything here at all? And maybe because we are born into this universe, like a fish is born into water, this isn't a question that we immediately intuitively ask in life. But I would bet that most of you at some point have allowed yourself to go there in your minds and ask the question, why am I here? Why is any of this here? But it's a little bit scary, actually, allowing ourselves to ask this question 
But I, I would imagine that some of us, when we've scaled up to the top of a mountain, right, and looked out and the clouds were, were at eye level, and we're looking over this incredible vast expanse that we have, have, have seen uh, this beautiful thing, we've wondered like, oh my goodness, I was down there, right, and now I'm here, and, and look at this, how did all this get here? Right, did somebody do this? How, how did this happen? Right, I, or I'd imagine that some of us with our, our backs to the ground, looking up at a pulsing panorama of stars have had the notion at some point to, 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 to ask, you know, who am I feeling very small in this vast, incredible universe, right? Why, why is this all here? Plato once said, astronomy is what compels the soul to look upwards and leads us from this world to another. And what he's saying is that while we might be able to look up and observe the stars, it's really the stars that lead us to the question of why are there stars at all? right, and, and, and who am I that I get to observe them? As uh, a very famous philosopher named Lud Ludwig Wittgenstein said, in the, um, it's not how things in the world are that is mystical, it's that the world exists at all, right? That's really the real question. And for, for the Christian, there, there's always been a fairly straightforward answer to this question. It seems to me no coincidence at all that the very first words of the Bible actually answer the question of existence. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And notice how this actually breaks down into two very important components for our discussion this morning. Uh, in the beginning, firstly, God, right? Firstly, we establish that before there was time, like, there was God. In the beginning, at the start of everything, what this verse is telling us is that God existed. It doesn't say in the beginning when God began. It just says in the beginning, and then it butts up against this God who has already been there, right? And so this is, it's kind of implying to us that this God who has already existed, who is known as the great I am, is outside of time, has always been there, uh, it's, it's one of the ways that we understand the very nature of God. Secondly, uh, in the beginning, it says God created, right? And, and so who created? That timeless being that's always existed in God. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because God himself created it. God spoke and a hundred billion galaxies were born. God breathed the breath of life and we these incredible creatures who are made in the image of that God suddenly became animated. We, we had life, we had thoughts. And, and Genesis makes the theological point that after God does this, uh, God looked at all of it and says it was very, very good, right? There, there's, there's a moral goodness to the thing that God has made. And so we who are Christians look up at the skies and say the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, right? The Bible says, why is there something rather than nothing? Because God created the world, right? And that's the biblical answer in one place to why there is something rather than nothing. But let me also give you all a philosophical answer that has stood the test of time, that has a lot of strength to it. And it's known as the cosmological argument. 
And the first person to give this argument in kind of the form that we're gonna look at this morning uh, was a Catholic theologian named Thomas Aquinas, who did it in the 13th century. And when Aquinas gave it, there were actually four parts to it, if you were to go back and look at it, but they all follow a very similar logic, and a fellow named William Lane Craig put it together in a way that we're gonna look at it this morning. But uh, for those of us that haven't uh, had logic or reasoning or need a refresher because we took it many years ago, uh, I want to give you an example of how logical arguments are made. You always begin with uh, a premise, and then a second premise follows, and those are things that are true or can be proven to be true or are self-evident, and you build one to another, and the inference is your conclusion. And so, for example, if we wanted to prove uh, that J.J. Watt is mortal, this is how we would do it, right? Maybe a few seasons ago that was something that needed proving, right? Nah, maybe not so much now, but uh, so the first premise in that argument would be all men are mortal. And that's one that seems uh, pretty self-evident. For everyone not named Jesus, uh, we have seen that men die. Uh, so that, that one's pretty well established. Premise number two, J.J. Watt is a man. We have very good reason to believe that J.J. Watt is a man. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go ask his mama. And so if you put those two things together, uh, that all men are mortal and J.J. Watt is a man, you reach the conclusion that J.J. Watt is mortal, right? Okay, so here's the cosmological argument. Let me just read through it and then we'll break it down. <clears throat> Premise one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. In other words, there's a cause for everything that exists. Premise two, the universe began to exist, which leads to the conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause, which uh, very much looks like a reason and an evidence for God. Let me, let me break it down. Let's look at the first premise. Whatever began has a cause. Is that true? You know, there's not been a tremendous amount of debate around this over the years because can you think of anything in, in existence that, that began and didn't have a reason for its existence, that began without a cause? No. Like everything that begins has a cause. Where do babies come from? There was a cause. Do you have to go to the bathroom? There was a cause. If Shannon is uh, headed to the bathroom in my house and she walks in and notices that on the toilet seat there is some yellow stuff, right? She is not going to say, oh, gosh, spontaneously Pete just appeared on the toilet seat here the, again today, right? As much as I try to tell her that that's what happened, right? No, uh, she's going to say, which one of the four males in my house was a sloppy fool that did this? There, there was a cause. If we did not have a cause, what we would have to actually believe in or make the case for is something that philosophers call an infinite regress. And what that is, is essentially this idea that dominoes have been falling forever and there was never a first push, right? And that's what an infinite regress would be. That would be a universe with an example without a cause. But the thing is, we don't have any reason to believe that exists. We don't live in a world that works that way. We live in a world that always requires a first push. And so, for instance, David Hume, who was one of the most skeptical philosophers and not a Christian, said of this argument, there was never asserted so absurd a proposition 
as that something could arise without a cause. If something exists, there must be a cause for its existence. Premise one, okay? Premise two, did the universe have a beginning? So this is a lot, where a lot more of the debate actually has happened uh, over time. And those who are trying to hold on to the notion that, that God isn't a part of the existence of the universe, actually, this is where a lot, a lot of the argument takes place. Uh, and, and what will often happen is that it will be argued that the universe is infinite, like it has existed infinitely and always, infinitely before the moment that we live in now, infinitely after that the universe uh, will exist from this moment on. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a pretty interesting argument. There's some folks who have tried to do it over the years. And, um, and one of the ones who kind of held this position was the very famous atheist Bertrand Russell, who didn't even really want to engage in the conversation, but said that the, that the universe exists infinitely and we should just accept it. He said, the universe is just there and that's all. And that was how he kind of worked his thinking on this. The, the, the problem with this uh, over, especially over the last couple of centuries, this position is that nobody's been able to come up with a model of the universe being infinite that's held up to the scrutiny of science. And, um, and in fact, some of the best work that we have from the sciences suggests that uh, the universe did, in fact, have a beginning, right? So, so let me just give two ways in which we tend to think that that's true. Here's one, the second law of thermodynamics. Anybody remember struggling through this in school, right? This is the idea that entropy always increases, that we move in a universe from a state of order to disorder, um, that we are winding down, that we are tending towards thermodynamic equilibrium. And just to kind of put this in terms that make simple sense, if, if there's a cup of coffee that's hot that you drink and then you forget about most of it, what's gonna happen to that cup of coffee an hour later? It's gonna be cold. It's gonna head towards what is known as a thermodynamic equilibrium. And so basically, uh, the second law of thermodynamics in regards to the universe would suggest that we are a cup of coffee in a universe that's, that's cooling down, right? And so um, there's this idea that's accepted by a lot of cosmologists that actually what that means is that you and I, at some point, humanity is headed for what is known as heat death, we are going to cool off in the cosmos to the point where uh, we are not able to sustain life anymore. And so one day, um, we're all going to die. Glad I could bring great information that's so uplifting to you this morning. But if that's true, what you have to assume is that we're not there quite yet, right? And if the universe was infinitely old, we would, we would have reach and reached that point of winding all the way down. We would already be dead on one side, and on the other side, if we are not there yet, what that assumes is there was some point at which we were warmer. There was some point in which uh, things were, were a lot hotter than they are now. It's hard to imagine that in Texas sometimes, but it's true. And, uh, and, and it all suggests that there was a beginning to the universe, the second law of thermodynamics. Here's another way, that, the reason that we think that it's true, uh, the Big Bang Theory. 
right? I think a lot of us are familiar with this, but uh, thanks to the work of Albert Einstein in general relativity and some folks that worked with his equations and a guy more recently named Edwin Hubble who measured uh, the red light shift in distant galaxies. One of the things that we've come to understand in this last century is that uh, we live in a universe that is expanding, right? At some point, there was a big bang, which is kind of spoken about, if I understand it right, as a cosmic singularity when all space, time, and matter came into existence very abruptly, beginning in this really hot and dense state, and then expanded rapidly like a bomb after this big, big boom. And, uh, and this is basically uh, the best sense, based on what we know about the general laws of relativity and quantum mechanics, that we can best explain the evidence that we have today. In fact, the Big Bang Theory is known as the standard cosmological model in cosmology. And, and, and what the Big Bang kind of assumes is that the universe had a beginning. And, and don't just take my word for it. Here are astrophysics' Andrew Lytle and astronomer John Loveday in the Oxford Companion to Cosmology who say this. The standard cosmological model is a striking success. As a phenomenological description of the cosmological data, that's a mouthful, the model's success in explaining high-precision observations has led a clear majority of the cosmological community to accept it as a good account of how the universe works. Thus, the best evidence from science that we have today suggests that our universe had a beginning. So friends, if both premise one and premise two are true, what does that mean? It, it means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. Thomas Aquinas said that the universe must have an unmoved mover who started it and got it all going. There was something outside of the space-time universe that was uncaused, that was immaterial, that was timeless, and that was unimaginably powerful that, that got the world going in a big bang. And to me, that sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, right? The, the cosmological argument really kind of sets up a belief in God, and especially the Christian God. And, and now let me respond to um, one criticism that, uh, that's gained some steam in recent days uh, that, that's actually been in the popular media. And, um, and, and, and the way I want to express it is how it's come through a fellow named uh, Lawrence Krauss, who is a physics professor and a cosmologist at Arizona State University who wrote a book titled A Universe from Nothing. And he is clearly in this book wanting to make the opposite point, that we can have a universe that exists from nothing. And this book is, is written on a popular level. It was a big-time seller. And uh, another person who you might know, known as one of the new atheists, uh, named Richard Dawkins, said this book was basically the last nail in God's coffin, right? Because what Krauss does in the book is he makes the case that we actually don't need God to explain how something can come from nothing. And, and Krauss takes what he knows from quantum theory and the laws of physics and explains how something can actually come from nothing. What, what he does is he explains that empty space in the universe, which is how he thinks about nothing, 
is actually not nothing. It's instead this boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles that are popping in and out of existence at incredible paces. And he says that nothing is actually unstable. That, and what happens is that in that instability, you always move towards a more stable state. And so, so you end up always, when you start with this nothing, with something. So that is what he's saying happened when our universe began. And, and, and he's able to do this in this understanding saying there could have been a big bang, there probably was a big bang, but we didn't need God to start it. We just needed nothing because this instable state of nothing led to the something that we know as the big bang, right? And, and let me say from a scientific perspective, uh, I, I have no reason to believe Krauss is wrong about that, right? I, I am not a scientist and I wanna be very clear about that. Uh, and, and I think that uh, a lot of what he has put forward has been affirmed by a lot of his fears. I do not understand quantum field theory. I don't know if I could understand it if I wanted to, right? I struggled mightily with second semester chemistry at university, right? So I, I have no reason to doubt that from a scientific perspective that a lot of what Krauss is saying here is, is dead on. Right? But, but let me also say, I still don't think Krauss has proven the point that he's contending to prove that a universe can came from nothing. Because do any, any of y'all see the problem in the argument that he's making? Yes, that's, one of, that's absolutely one of the problems. And I'll, I'll bring that up later. Uh, I think he's redefined nothing. He's got a different understanding of nothing than we do when we talk about it. When we think of nothing, we actually mean no thing, a hard vacuum. There is nothing there. When he describes nothing, he's talking about this boiling, bubbling brew of particles, right? And it's really interesting. Krauss went on late night with Stephen Colbert, and Colbert took him to task on this. He said, uh, Lawrence, that is not how I understand nothing. And what I would have added to Colbert's argument is, is Krauss is actually starting with something when he describes nothing. Where did that boiling, bubbling brew of virtual particles come from, right? Where did the laws of quantum mechanics that you're using to work all this out come from? And what's very interesting is that more honest people in this field are willing to be clearer about this. Take, for example, this fellow named Alexander Vilenkin. He is a cosmologist, a physicist from Tufts University outside of Boston, considered in the field to be one of the brightest minds around. And, uh, and, and he is um, not a Christian, but he is very honest about the work that he's done. And he was asked uh, in an interview about the origin of the universe and how he has come to work with his understanding about how everything began. And, uh, and this is what he said, what I am starting with is the laws of physics, the laws of general relativity, the laws of quantum mechanics. These laws I assume, I assume to exist in some sense, in some platonic sense, even prior to the universe, right? And this is the really important part, but the extremely intriguing question of why these laws, who gives these laws, it's a deep mystery. And then the honest part, I don't have much to say about that, right? So, so what this evidence from origins actually does, uh, according to people like Vilenkin, is instead of putting the last nail in God's coffin, 
it actually kind of sets up this question, who gave us everything that we started with? Where did the laws of physics and general relativity and quantum come from? Who gives these laws? Honest scientists say, I don't have much to say about that because it's not a scientific question. It's, it's a philosophical inquiry. And so what we learn then when we look at a book like, like Lawrence Krauss writing it is that, frankly, I just want to be clear about this. Lawrence Krauss is cheating. Um, he, he, what I mean by that is he is, is writing this book with an agenda to speak to philosophical questions from a scientific perspective. He is wielding the, the, the authority of science as he, as he secretly moves into the realm of philosophy, and this happens a lot. He's not allowing for this really healthy conversation to take place between science and faith. Instead, he's saying, we don't need faith, all we need is science, and, 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 and so let's, let's be done with this God thing. And, and, and he's cheating, he's got an ace up his sleeve. And I just think that's really important to point out. We're gonna talk about a little bit more of that relationship between science and faith in weeks to come. But I just wanna finish with two very important points. Firstly, I hope that after seeing what we've gone through this morning, that you're able to see that the Christian position on the origin of the universe, on why there is something rather than nothing, that God exists, is actually a very reasonable position, right? When people say there is no evidence for God, please recognize immediately that that is utter baloney, right? There is absolutely evidence for God as good as any evidence that exists, right? And when you consider all of the data, when you look at the best thoughts from science, when you look at some of the the most enduring work from philosophy, uh, I mean, it really actually kind of lends itself to this idea that gosh, there must have been something like a God that created it all. This is not a God of the gaps position where Christians say, oh, we don't really understand science, so we're just gonna posit God in the gaps where we don't understand things. It's a deeply thought out uh, position that has withstood the test of time. Uh, God created the universe is an answer that's philosophically sound and in harmony with some of the best science that we currently understand, okay? So, so have some confidence in Genesis 1.1. Okay, here's the second thing. If you do not believe in the answer of God, if you hold the non-theistic, the atheistic position on the origin of the universe, I, I just want to point out, I think that that position actually has the burden of proof. Right? It, it's not the theist. It's the people who don't positive God, who, 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 who are trying to say that something did come from nothing. And I, I honestly... Uh, have done a bit of surveying in the work here, and I, I frankly do not think I've heard a good answer yet. How did something come from nothing? And what I want to show you over these next few weeks is that leap from nothing to something that the atheist, who is also a materialist, who thinks that all that exists in the world is atoms and, and DNA and, and the material world, uh, has to make more leaps than just the creation of something from nothing. You also have to explain, for instance, how order has come from chaos, how life has come from non-life, how reason has come from irrationality, how personality came from impersonality, and next week we're gonna talk about how morality has come from amorality. Because in a, a materialistic, natural world, I really struggle to see how a non-theist answers these questions. 
which is why I think the belief in God is a whole lot more rational and there is a really good logic for faith. And so let me close by saying, uh, I also know that this argument uh, makes a case for a belief in God, but it doesn't necessarily make the case for the Christian God, okay? That's true. Uh, all this does is it makes a really good argument for God. If you wanna make the case for the Christian God, what you need to do is look at the life and the death and the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. That's a different discussion, right? This discussion sets up for that discussion. But, but I also wanna point out, especially in the context of what we've looked at today, is that one of the ways that Jesus referred to himself, and the Bible refers to Jesus makes a lot of sense for what we've learned today. The one who was and is and is to come, Jesus who is known as the great I am, right? And maybe learning some of those things, putting it together, would pique your interest, other people's interest, to know more about this Jesus person who is himself claimed to be God, all right? Would you pray with me? Lord, <laughs> I thank you so much for today, and um, for the fact that you've given us these minds um, that we love you with. And I just pray that as we uh, are faithful people ourselves, that we would have confidence to know that the faith that we have makes a lot of sense, Lord. And I pray that as we engage conversations, as you are drawing people to yourself, Lord, that we would have the courage to, to speak and to share what we know and, and, and to not just let people make comments that there is an evidence for God, but to have the courage to step in and engage them and, and, and speak uh, about why we believe what we believe and offer a defense for the, for the faith that we have uh, so that, Lord, people can see how beautiful and wonderful Jesus is and how much you love every single one of us on this earth, and they might feel and experience that love for themselves. I thank you. Um, for all this. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.